So, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, we're starting a new series today on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible or an app or whatever it is, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and we will get started. The Sermon on the Mount, for those who don't know, is the longest continuous block of teaching that we have from uh, the life of Jesus and the four gospel accounts. And uh, it is widely regarded as the most influential teaching ever given by anyone, anywhere in world history. So despite the fact that it was given thousands of years ago, it continues to powerfully shape our world. And even when we look back over the last couple of centuries at some of the most influential people, Um, people like Martin Luther King or Gandhi or other similar figures, uh, we see not only their impact on humanity, but when you trace and dig deeper into their lives, um, their life and activity can actually be um, rooted, traced back to the Sermon on the Mount in one way or another. And in fact, if you watched uh, the presidential inauguration just a few days ago, you'll notice that they were actually reading, one of the readings was from Sermon on the Mount. And so today, um, millions of people are still hearing these words and being shaped by these words and being shaped by people who have been shaped by these words. And so rather than kind of blowing through the Sermon on the Mount and just making some broad, uh, broad stroke assessments of what it is, we're actually going to slow down and dig deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, attempting to understand what Jesus actually meant by the words that he said, and actually sitting in those words long enough that we allow them to shape us as individuals and as a community. So I think that this series is going to be um, really instrumental in shaping the life of our church, and so I'm excited to get into that with you. Before we read the text, there's two things that I want to do. One is that I want to look at the way that Matthew has structured the book and the, in the place that Sermon on the Mount fits within his overall structure. And, and second, I want to paint a picture of what this actually might have looked like if we were there when Jesus gave this teaching. And, and the reason that I want to do that is that out of the four gospel accounts that we have, um, Matthew is what we would call the most Jewish of all of the gospel accounts. That was his audience and his frame of reference for everything. Uh, and we are not very Jewish at all. Actually, I think Matt Karsh is. He's down with the kid. Is anyone else Jewish? Like ethnically Jewish at all? One. Like full? Half? Oh, a little. Okay, a little bit. A little. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, most of us have, except for like a, a, a tenth of her heritage. We have no idea. We, we are the Gentiles. We are the outsiders being invited into the story of God. And so uh, what I want to do is to um, start by looking at the major underlying themes in the book of Matthew. Because he's a brilliant writer, but he's also a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience. And so we typically miss the underlying themes that he's woven into his gospel account. For example, Um, one of the major themes and things that Matthew wants to demonstrate is that Jesus is the son of David. And as a descendant of David and a royal king, he's qualified to fulfill the covenant that God made with David. 
Another major theme in the book of Matthew is that Jesus is divine. Or in Matthew's words, he is God with us. And he sets out to show that again and again. And for our purposes this morning, uh, the most relevant theme is that Jesus is the new Moses. So, just as Moses um, led the uh, Israelites out of Egypt through the waters via the parting of the Red Sea, was tested in the wilderness for 40 years and received uh, the covenant and the law on a mountain at Mount Sinai. And, And now as Matthew starts his gospel, he's showing that Jesus was also led out of Egypt where he had been in hiding through the waters of baptism in the Jordan, tested for 40 days in the wilderness, and now he's on a mountain, or really what we would call a hill, uh, announcing a new covenant and a new law, so to speak, uh, on this mountainside. And so if you were Jewish, you'd kind of see those, those themes jumping off of the page. And by drawing these parallels... Uh, Matthew is making some incredible claims about who Jesus is and what he's here to do. So in the words of Matthew, Jesus is here to, next slide, deliver us from slavery, give new divine teaching, to save us from our sin, and to initiate a new covenant. And as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we see it fits um, pretty squarely, oh, last slide, pretty squarely within these goals and that it's sort of a new divine teaching. But before we just recognize that and then rush on with that assumption, we want to examine that a little deeper because what we typically do in the modern day and often throughout history is that different groups of people have misunderstood the relationship of Sermon on the Mount to these other goals that Jesus came to accomplish. So we might understand, okay, this is a new divine teaching that he's giving us, but some of us have assumed that this new divine teaching is actually the means by which we'll be delivered from slavery. Or that this new divine teaching is the means by which we'll be saved from our sin. Or at least be able to manage our sin better. Or that this new divine teaching um, are the terms of the new covenant that this is how we enter the new covenant, or this is how we stay in the new covenant, or stay in God's blessing. Do you see that? It's all about the relationship with Sermon on the Mount with the other things that Jesus came to do. So the questions that we want to start by asking at the beginning of the series is, what is the role of this divine teaching? Is this teaching the means to these other things, or is it something else entirely? And these are important questions to wrestle with, especially because so many people get it wrong. And the second you misunderstand the relationship between the divine teaching and the other things that Jesus came to accomplish, we slip into very unhealthy ways of looking at Sermon on the Mount and relating to the teachings of Jesus. So we want to get that right first. There are those uh, who approach Sermon on the Mount and say, hey, Humanity has just been misbehaving. That's our problem, right? And so now Jesus has come with a new set of rules to teach us how to behave. And and if we would all just behave and follow these rules that Jesus gave us, then the world would just be a better place, which is kind of true. 
but, but they'll go even further than that and, and say, hey, these, these rules, if we all just committed to these rules, if we all just agreed to be the best people that we could be and follow the teachings of Jesus, that would solve the problem of human evil. Do you see where that goes? And suddenly you're slipping into saying, well, yeah, actually, the, the rules are what are going to deliver us from slavery and free us from our sin and, and on and on. And so if we make any of those assumptions, we're going to slip into an unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship with the Sermon on the Mount. And we don't want to do that. So with that disclaimer out of the way, um, I I want to start by setting the scene. If you were here a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about the the launching of Jesus' ministry. And um, Jesus sort of came on the scene from 30 years of obscurity. He came on the scene Uh, with a very simple announcement. And this was his announcement. He said, I did not put that in the slides. He said, repent. He said, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And that's all it says. He went around preaching, repent because the kingdom of God has come near. And we talked a few weeks ago in depth about what that actually meant and what people thought he was trying to say. And so to make a a long sermon short, uh, our working definition of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven uh, is this. God's kingdom is anywhere that God rules and reigns, the place where God's will is done. And so Jesus not only talks about this kingdom, but he actually demonstrates quite clearly that it has arrived and is being launched into this world as he speaks. And so he calls his first disciples, and then it says this. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues in the more conservative areas, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread not just in these conservative areas, but all over Syria, non-Jewish areas, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, which is a mixed area, the Decapolis, a pagan Jewish area, Jerusalem, uh, the conservative center of life in Israel, and Judea, and the regions across the Jordan, other foreign countries, all came to him for that purpose. And so we have, we have people from every background and political ideology and worldview all coming to hear this message on the kingdom. And, and they're not just hearing Jesus speak words about the kingdom, they're actually experiencing it. It's actually bursting onto the scene in their midst in real time. And, and so what we see uh, immediately, what they sensed was, hey, God is doing something new and, and fresh and provocative, and I'm willing to walk a hundred miles just to sit here and be a part of it. I, I, I want in on this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And so they, they were beginning to understand, hey, there's a new kingdom coming, and Jesus is the new king that will rule over that kingdom. And you see this buzz of excitement. But honestly, all of that raises more questions than it solves. 
And, and so we're left trying, wondering, hey, how do we understand this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? And, and how are we to operate in this new kingdom that Jesus is talking about? That is the question that the Sermon on the Mount is going to answer. Jesus is going to take that one little phrase announcing the arrival of God's kingdom and he's going to unpack it for us in depth and detail. And so, if you can picture the scene, um, we've got crowds of every race and background and nationality, and in their midst, what Jesus does is he calls his disciples, his committed followers, to the forefront. He calls them to himself and up onto this hill, which acted like a natural amphitheater beside the, lake, uh, uh, beside the Sea of Galilee, um, and he began to teach them, his disciples, about life in the kingdom. But notice that everybody else is there too. All of these other crowds that have, have been drawn in, um, they're within earshot. And, and they're also being invited into this new counterintuitive kingdom that Jesus is going to tell them about. And so what follows uh, has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is really just a fancy way of saying a, a talk on a hill. And this is what it says. If you have your Bibles, this is Matthew 5, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds from all over... He went up on a mountainside, or a hill, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, we have Jesus sitting on a hill in the ancient Near East, talking to his disciples about the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus claims is now coming to earth in and through him. For centuries, the Jews have been waiting for God to reestablish his rule and reign. And so through John the Baptist and now through Jesus, it's becoming clear that God is in fact doing something new and that this kingdom of God is on the horizon and in fact, it's breaking over the horizon and breaking into this reality uh, here and now. And so Jesus sits down to teach his disciples about life in this new kingdom, the inbreaking kingdom, which is now among them and will come in full one day. And the first thing you need to know, Jesus says, about life in the kingdom is that the, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. 
It's not going to work in the way that you think it's going to work. In fact, it's going to challenge your preconceived notions of what you thought the kingdom was supposed to look like. In fact, Jesus says, God is now pouring out lavish blessing on everyone who's willing to accept this new thing that Jesus is doing. And it starts right here with this series of blessed statements. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness but don't see it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing good. And so what we typically do uh, as Christians is that we approach this list as a list of virtues to strive for. After all, if Jesus is giving us a new moral code, a new set of rules to follow, then surely we should strive to be these things. And, and one could forgive them or forgive us uh, for making that assumption because there's elements of that in here. We, in fact, we should strive to be merciful and, and to be pure in heart and to be brokers of peace as Jesus himself is going to make crystal clear in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But we sometimes go further than that and, and we say, I should strive to mourn more. I mean, isn't that the appropriate heart posture in, in this world? It, and, and I should strive to be poor in spirit. And, and I should strive to hunger for righteousness uh, without seeing it. The only problem is that no one in Jesus' original audience would have received it that way. Jesus is announcing something provocative, but not in the ways that we typically think he is. This list is not a list of virtues to strive for. Jesus isn't saying, hey, try hard to be like this. Rather, he's making a provocative statement that people who already are like this are actually, despite appearances, in a really good place. He's saying, hey, if you're mourning and oppressed and, and, and starving for justice and meek and downtrodden and you're seeking after God, you, you're actually in a beautiful place. In fact, in light of the inbreaking kingdom of heaven, you should rejoice in the place that you're at. Which is really the exact opposite of the way that the world works. Here, Jesus is, is announcing a, a reversal of expectations, a, a reversal of blessing. And, and if we misread the text, we're, we're going to miss that message completely. I want you to listen to this. Uh, this is um, N.T. Wright, the well-known Bible scholar. He, he writes it like this. This is his version. He says, When Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a hillside and sat down. His disciples came to him. He took a deep breath and began his teaching. Wonderful news for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Wonderful news for the mourners. You're going to be comforted. 
wonderful news for the meek. You're going to inherit the earth. And he goes on and on down the list. Wonderful news, wonderful news, wonderful news. Something new is happening here. Not because you're a mourner or because you're poor in spirit, but just as much in spite of those things, the kingdom of God is coming to you. Do you see the difference? Jesus isn't announcing timeless truths about human existence as if he were a philosopher or something. Because those who mourn are not always comforted. We know that. And, And the meek often go to their graves without inheriting a speck of land. And those who hunger for justice often die without seeing that hunger fulfilled. So so if we assume that Jesus is making observations about the way that things have always been, then we are also forced to come to the conclusion that Jesus was wrong. But instead, The announcement is that with Jesus' work and the launching of the new kingdom, this new counterintuitive world that Jesus is speaking of is now finally coming true. This is good news, not good advice. This is an announcement, not a philosophical assessment. This is an invitation into an upside-down kingdom of blessing. The passage that we just read uh, is often called the Beatitudes. And uh, that word comes from the root word in Latin, um, beatus, which means blessed or blessed. But really, um, blessed, or some of your translations say happy, which is even worse, um, those words do not capture what Jesus was talking about. The word that Jesus used is markarios, which rather than blessed or happy, it more accurately is wonderful news or almost has the air of congratulations. So what Jesus is saying is, God is at work in a new and fresh way and you're invited. A new era has begun for the people of God, and it will look upside down in the eyes of the world. The world's version of blessing looks something like this. There it is. Wealth, success, long life, popularity, and victory in battle. Those are the things that we dream about. Those are the things that Hollywood makes um, the, the top movies about. Those are the things that, that we rap about. Not that we all rap. I mean, those people who, who do, they rap about that stuff. And, and what Jesus is doing, he's, he's putting this in sharp contrast with the inbreaking kingdom of heaven. Because the inbreaking kingdom of heaven, the recipients of God's blessing in the inbreaking kingdom are not the people that Jewish culture is saying are blessed by God. It's the flip side. Of, it's the humble, the poor, the meek, the vulnerable, and the poor in spirit. Everything we thought we knew about the good life, everything we thought we knew about who was blessed and who was not blessed, is being challenged and flipped upside down. We have to question that all over again. Our presuppositions need to be thrown out. Where is God to be found? Where will his blessing fall? Who... who, Who's at the front of the line for the inbreaking kingdom of heaven? 
How are we to experience and engage in the inbreaking kingdom of heaven? Well, it's not going to look the way that you assumed. And, and there's actually a whole bunch of people who the world calls blessed. They're at a very high risk of missing the kingdom of God completely. And there are a whole bunch of people who the world has called cursed and they believe it that they're cursed by God and cursed by humanity and that life has nothing but bad news. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 good news. Because when the kingdom of heaven breaks in, it, it's going to fall on these people. It's going to fall in unexpected places. And so the Sermon on the Mount actually becomes a manifesto for human flourishing within the new world that God is bringing into creation. And all of this that Jesus is talking about, all of this happens not in some disembodied future place called heaven. He's saying, no, 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 this is happening right here and right now. The kingdom of God will come in full one day. And if we think it's here in full today, we're kidding ourselves. All you have to do is walk out these doors and start walking around our city, and it should be painfully obvious that the kingdom is not here in full. But on the flip side, if you think the kingdom of God is not here at all, if you think the kingdom is not available to you and to them, you're making just as grave of an error. This unexpected satisfaction, this blessing, this mercy, this status as the children of God, all the things that Jesus is talking about, this fresh experience of the reality of God is all happening right now. We don't have to wait for that till the kingdom comes in full. He says the kingdom of God is now among you and it's coming in full. It's both. It's right now and it's yet to come. We like to say the kingdom of God is now and it's not yet. And you can see it. We're stuck in that tension and you can see it in the words of Jesus. He says, when will the meek inherit the earth? Resurrection. But, but when will the poor in spirit and the persecuted inherit the kingdom? It's both. It's going to happen then in full, but it's happening right now. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And so we're all invited into this new kingdom reality of unexpected blessing. We think that all of that stuff that Jesus is talking about is all being stored up for us somewhere. And so when we read the phrase kingdom of heaven, we assume that means the age to come. And when we read um, verses like verse 12, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So we say, of course, Jesus is talking about that, that disembodied place that I'm going to go when I die. Save a cloud for me, Jesus. I have millions of years to learn the harp. It's going to be awesome. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> but when we think that way about heaven and the kingdom of heaven, we're blowing right past the very thing that Jesus was trying to say. It, the Sermon on the Mount is provocative. No, no, no. Jesus and the Gospels are provocative 
Because they are the announcement that heaven is coming into this place and is invading this space right here and right now. And so we have to change the way that we think about blessing. We have to change the way that we think about the kingdom of God. We have to change the way that we think about heaven as that's often been used in Christian subculture. None of this is as distant as you've assumed that it is. To stick with N.T. Wright, this is his definition of heaven. He says, heaven is God's space where full reality exists, close by our earthly reality and interlocking with it. One day, heaven and earth will be joined together forever, and the true state of affairs at present out of sight will be unveiled. In other words, in Jesus' words, the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. It's interlocking with this reality. It's at the tip of your fingers. It's accessible. It's available to you. And it's breaking into this world. And as it breaks in, blessing is going to fall in unexpected places. Things are going to happen that the world cannot explain. It's going to start moving at a different frequency. And so our job as the redeemed community of God operating in the Holy Spirit is to live into this kingdom. We, we are recipients of the Beatitudes as we, as we read down that list and we find ourselves on that list. But, but we are also avenues for the kingdom of heaven. We're avenues for this unexpected blessing to flow out and fall on people that the world says are unblessed. This is our mission statement. This is our purpose. This is the reason the church exists. So go, Jesus says, and bless those who the world has has called unblessed and proclaim to them that they are not beyond reach, that the kingdom of God is not far from them. In fact, they are in the perfect place to receive it. The, the, The announcement of Jesus and his gospel is good news for everyone, but it is especially good news for the people who think that they are too far gone and that they have no access to the kingdom. It's the best news for those, for those people. And so to the people who humanity has called cursed, to the people who assume they've been cursed by God, to the people who feel as if life is nothing but bad news, we actually get to go out and, and share this counterintuitive announcement that no, 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 the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is close at hand and it's available to you. And so if any of that um, describes you this morning, the incredible hope of the gospel is that God's space is interlocking with our space and breaking into this reality. And so you can receive it no matter how far you feel. It's close at hand and, and it's for you. You can can operate in it. You can be transformed by it. And if none of that describes you, then rest assured that the Beatitudes describe the majority of our city. And, And so as we go out there and encounter real people and real problems and real darkness, we carry this message into the darkness.
no matter what your situation is, no matter how far gone you feel, even if you feel like God's curse is on you, the reverse is actually coming true in Jesus. God's unexpected blessing is yours to take hold of. And so as we close, I want to read the Beatitudes uh, one final time. But this time I've, I've changed a few of the words. We, we're not in the habit of rewriting the scriptures, um, just so you know. But this is my attempt, one attempt, at the Beatitudes for Spokane. Blessed are the single moms, because theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the unemployed, for they will be richly provided for. Blessed are the homeless in Riverfront Park, because they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the refugees and the wanderers, because they will find an eternal community of blessing. Their inheritance is a city of eternal foundations. Blessed are those who have been cheated on and betrayed, for they will drink deeply of the faithfulness of God. Blessed are those who love in the face of hate and indifference, for the unending love of God is theirs. Blessed are the fatherless, because they will know their Father in heaven. Blessed are the divorced, for the fullness of the Spirit is theirs to take hold of. And blessed are you when your professors and classmates and roommates and clients scoff at the gospel and the hope of resurrection. For this is the way that the world has always treated the mysteries of God. Rejoice, because you know you're being true to the counterintuitive message of hope, grace, and resurrection, which confounds the wisdom of the wise and transforms and saves and rescues all who are willing to receive it. Now go and be recipients and conduits of this new inbreaking kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love us, God. Thank you that you love us uh, enough to actually come into humanity and not just to die for us, God. We're starting to grasp uh, the mystery of your death on the cross, but thank you for living for us. Thank you for teachings like this one that actually wake us up to the kingdom of God and the way that it operates. And so Jesus, as we, as we go out these doors and into um, what we call normal life, would we not see that as divorced from the kingdom of heaven? Would we not view the kingdom of heaven as something that's a million miles away that we'll see one day, but would we see it as right there at, at our fingertips, in, in our classrooms, at our desks, in our, in our cubicles? The kingdom of God has come near. And so, Jesus, I pray that first and foremost, we would learn 
to be recipients of unexpected blessing as we find ourselves on this list. And then as we receive that unexpected blessing, God, would you open our eyes to those people that have assumed they're too far from the kingdom? And would, would you use us as, as vehicles, as avenues, as conduits to reach our hurting city? A city where most people have assumed they're too far from the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of God is too far from them. And Jesus says, no, the opposite is true. It's right here, and it's for you. In Jesus' name, amen.